Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would speak, that the earth would be filled with your glory, that we would stand on your promises, Lord, that you would teach us holy reverence and true humility. God, we pray that you would make clear your wonderful plans for us as we look at your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Don't you hate it when you miss out? The feeling of missing out on something. I think they actually have a a syndrome or something, FOMO, the fear of missing out, which is something you hear from time to time. When something wonderful happens and you weren't there to experience it, And it leaves you with this feeling of disappointment, this sense of wanting. Some of you are here today for child dedications of your nieces and nephews or your grandkids or friends of your family because you don't want to miss out. The celebration isn't quite the same without actually being there for the dedication. Some of you had a tremendous sense of missing out. I think about the Super Bowl this last February. And some people turned the television off in midway through the third quarter, and they went to bed early that night, and they missed out on one of the greatest comebacks in all of Super Bowl history, and they missed the glory of Tom Brady being displayed for all to see, especially for Pittsburgh fans, to revel in, to enjoy, but they missed out. When we lived on Cape Cod, I, one of my favorite hobbies was ocean fishing. And one of the best times to go fishing for striped bass, particularly in the Cape Cod Canal, uh, which is a world-renowned fishing spot, is, is to go at night. And so every time you wanted to go fishing at night, you, you had a choice to make. And the choice is your friends call you and they say, hey, we're going fishing tonight. Well, what time are you going? Well, we'll probably go down there about 8 o'clock. But 8 o'clock means that you're going to get home at about 1 o'clock in the morning. And so you have a choice. Am I going to go and be really tired the next day? Or am I going to be a responsible adult and go to bed? And so naturally, I tried to be a responsible adult and went to bed early. And the next morning, you wake up to a string of text message pictures on your phone. A fish this big and your heart sinks into your stomach, and there's an overwhelming sense, I missed out. Do you ever wonder if you're missing out on the things that God has for you? Do you ever wonder if you will reach a certain point in life and and, and your actions And the history of events become more clear. And you have a tremendous sense of regret for missing out. I don't want to reach a point in my life where I'm 60 or 65 or 70 or 75. And I look back upon my days and I say, I only have 10, 20 years left. And I had all of this time and all of this opportunity. But I missed out in what God was doing. Today we continue our series in the book of Judges that we are calling Break the Cycle. And we turn to Judges chapter 5. I want to ask you to open a Bible and turn with me. Page 203 of that Pew Bible. Judges 5 is a unique account of some people experiencing the benefit of God. 
and other people missing out on the benefit of what God is doing. And as we turn to Judges 5, I need to remind you of the story. Last week in Judges 4, we saw the story of Deborah and Barak and a great battle that God's people won. And Judges 5 is the second part of this story. Well, really, it's a recounting of the story. It's a song. It's a poem that the two leaders, Deborah and Barak, engage in. They stand on the field of battle victorious, and naturally the party begins, and they do something that we don't often do anymore. They sing a song that recounts the glories of the battle and recounts the shame of those who lost the battle. Let me remind you of the story. The story goes something like this, that Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They're stuck in this cycle of sin that they keep going back to again and again and again. And as they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, they became desperate. God raised up for them a judge, a military leader named Barak, and a prophetess named Deborah, who would lead them into battle against the nation that was oppressing them. The general Sisera led the armies of this Canaanite nation, and they went to battle. As they went to battle, Barak was a man who was weak and of little faith. Deborah was strong and a mighty leader, and God delivered the army of Sisera into their hands in a great victory, a true story of the underdog coming back to win. Sisera had 900 chariots. Israel had none. The story concludes with the army being completely wiped out and Sisera himself fleeing the battlefield and running away in an attempt to save his life, where he comes across a tent of a woman named Yael, and Yael, who has nothing to do with the conflict, is used by God as an instrument to bring down this great and evil ruler. The battle has been won. The people are taking stock of what God has done in their midst. And now Deborah and Barak break out into a song that recounts the battle. And so look with me as we read Judges chapter 5 together. This is what it says in verse 1. Then sang Deborah and Barak, the son of Abinoam, on that day, that the leaders took the lead in Israel, that the people offered themselves willingly. Bless the Lord. Hear, O kings, give ear, O princes. To the Lord I will sing. I will make melody to the Lord, the God of Israel. Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the region of Edom, the earth trembled and the heavens dropped. Yes, the clouds dropped water. The mountains quaked before the Lord, even Sinai before the Lord, the God of Israel. In the days of Shamgar, son of Anath, in the days of Yael, the highways were abandoned and travelers kept to the byways. The villagers ceased in Israel. They ceased to be until I arose. I, Deborah, arose as a mother in Israel. When new gods were chosen, then war was in the gates. Was shield or spear to be seen among the 40,000 in Israel? My heart goes out to the commanders of Israel who offered themselves willingly among the people. Bless the Lord. 
Tell of it, you who ride on white donkeys, you who sit on rich carpets, and you who walk by the way (coughs) to the sound of the musicians at the watering places. There they repeat the righteous triumphs of the Lord, the righteous triumphs of his villagers in Israel. Then down to the gates marched the people of the Lord. Awake, awake, Deborah, Awake, awake, break out into song. Arise, Barak, lead away your captives, O son of Abinoam. Then down marched the remnant of the noble. The people of the Lord marched down for me against the mighty. From Ephraim, their root, they marched down into the valley, following you, Benjamin, with your kinsmen. From Machir marched down the commanders, and from Zebulun, those who bear the lieutenant's staff. The princes of Issachar came with Deborah. And Issachar, faithful to Barak, into the valley they rushed at his heels. Now listen carefully. This is where the tone of the song changes. Up to this point, they've been talking about the greatness of God. They've been singing about the valor of the different tribes engaged in the battle. But now they call out those who sat out. This is what it says in verse 15. Among the clans of Reuben, there were great searchings of heart. Why did you sit among, still among the sheepfolds to hear the whistling for the flocks? Among the clans of Reuben, there were great searchings of heart. Gilead stayed beyond the Jordan, and Dan, why did he stay with the ships? Asher sat at the coast of the sea, staying by his landings. And it changes again. Zebulon is a people who risked their lives to death. Nephtali too, on the heights of the field. The, king, the kings came, they fought. Then fought the kings of Canaan at Tanakh by the waters of Megiddo. They got no spoils of silver. From heaven, the stars fought. From their courses, they fought against Sisera. The torrent Kishon swept them away. The ancient torrent Kishon, march on my soul with might. Then loud beat the horse's hooves with galloping, galloping on his steeds. Curse Meras, says the angel of the Lord. Curse its inhabitants thoroughly, because they did not come to the help of the Lord, to the help of the Lord against the mighty. Most blessed of women be Yael, the wife of Haber the Kenite. Of tent-dwelling women be most blessed. For he asked for water, and she gave him milk. She brought him curds in a noble's bowl. She sent her hand to the tent bag, to her right hand to the workman's mallet. She struck Sisera. She crushed his head. She shattered and pierced his temple. Between her feet, he sank. He fell. He lay still. Between her feet... He sank, he fell. Where he sank, there he fell, dead. Out of the widow she peered. The mother of Sisera wailed through the lattice. Why is his chariot so long in coming? Why tarry the hoofbeats of his chariots? Her wisest princesses answer. Indeed, she answers herself. Have they not found and divided the spoil, a womb or two for every man? Spoil of dyed materials for Sisera, spoil of dyed materials embroidered, two pieces of dyed work embroidered for the neck is spoil. So may all your enemies perish, O Lord, but your friends 
be like the sun as he rises in his might. And the land had rest for 40 years. We don't often write songs that recount the great battles of history anymore. This was common practice in the ancient world. And in this song, we see sort of a filling out of the picture of what happened. The picture begins, and it's not very good. The land was a hotbed for thieves. Verses 6 and 7 tell us that in the days of Shamgar, the travelers would not go on the highways. They stuck to the byways. They wouldn't go where they could be seen. They stayed on the back roads where they could remain anonymous. The villagers themselves were absent. And that this army that was ruled or led by Sisera consisted of pillagers and rapists and men who were opposed to God and his ways. And as the poem progresses, we see a picture of a great and mighty God and three types of people who respond to him. First, we see in verses three to five, look with me at verse three, that God is the focus of the glory in the victory of his people. And if God is the focus of glory in the victory of these people, it's a healthy reminder for us that he is the focus of glory in our victories in life as well. We see at the very beginning, verse three, hear, O kings, give ear, O princes, to the Lord I will sing. I will make melody to the Lord, the God of Israel. He is displayed as the God who is mighty. He is powerful in his actions. Listen to the language that we see in verses four and five. This Lord, when he went out, the earth trembled. The heavens dropped, the clouds dropped water. Mountains quaked before the Lord. It leaves the impression that God is terrible. He's awesome. He is unmatched. And he is superior to the false God that many in Canaan were worshiping at the time. This false God, Baal, was often pictured with the image of a storm cloud. But this God, Yahweh, was the one in which made the heavens fall and the rains come down and the mountains tremble before him. This is the God who shakes the earth. He is infinitely more impressive than Baal. And nothing that this false God can display will match his wondrous deeds. And because of all of these things, he is the focus of the glory of his people. So often the Israelites had forgotten that this God was mighty in work and deed. So often do we forget that his nature is superior and his might is impressive. We forget that when we go out into our difficult situations of life, that we never go alone, that he, the limitless one, goes before us. We are tempted to think, as Israel thought along the way, that other sources of power, other sources of influence, other sources of comfort would be things that are greater than he. But in actuality, there is no one who can match him. He is transcendent in his nature. He oversees all 
in his awesome power. And he is imminent. He is near to his people in his kindness and his love. He is superior to anything or anyone. And so we worship him. We devote ourselves to this God. We love him. And we honor him. We think about him. And we are motivated by him. He is a great and mighty God and all glory is his. Now, in that framework, we see three types of people and how they respond to the calling from God to participate in his work. The first type of person that we see in this song is found in verse 14. And these are the heroes who participated in the battle. Look with me down at verse 14. We see different tribes mentioned specifically by name. Ephraim, they rooted, their their root marched down into the valley. Benjamin, Machir, which is a subset of the tribe of Manasseh, the tribe of Zebulun, who bear the lieutenant's staff, and Issachar. All of these tribes marched into battle. And this was not a battle they wanted to march into. They were going to certain death. It was foot soldiers versus chariots. This wasn't the person or the time where they would say, hey, I want to receive this action right now. The task was great. The task was scary. But they trusted God. And when he called, they answered because they trusted him and because they saw that their participation in this battle pointed to the fact that they were part of something that was larger than themselves. I wonder how often you think about the fact that your life is part of something larger than yourself. We live in a time right now, perhaps more than any other time in human history where the focus or the goal or the pursuit of personal happiness is put ever before us. And the problem with the goal or the pursuit of personal happiness is that it ultimately does not deliver on its promises. In the late 80s and early 90s, we begin to see a shift of people in the West and this focus on personal happiness. At that time, there were several hundred studies about happiness published each year. By the year 2014, there were over 10,000 studies published per year. And it was an exciting shift in the field of psychology, one that the public immediately responded to. I mean, after all, when someone tells you this is the way for you to be personally happy, who doesn't sort of perk up and say, well, that sounds good, I kind of want that for me. The media began to clamor at this idea and they covered it from multiple outlets, this new research. Soon entrepreneurs began to monetize these studies on personal happiness and they were followed by a deluge of celebrities, of personal coaches and life coaches and motivational speakers and even some pastors, all eager to share the gospel of happiness. 
And according to psychology today, in 2000, the year 2000, the number of books published about happiness was a modest 50. By 2008, that number had skyrocketed to 4,000. And yet, there's a major problem with the happiness frenzy. And that is that it failed to deliver on what it promised. That for all the expanse of the happiness industry of our time, there continues to grow a sense that we are more miserable in some ways than ever. And actually, social scientists have uncovered an ironic truth. And that is, chasing happiness actually makes people unhappy. When you chase happiness, it actually makes you unhappy. But what if your happiness wasn't tied to your personal pursuits? What if true and greater fulfillment is actually found in recognizing that you are part of something much bigger than yourself? I mean, think about this for me. Think about this with me for a minute, Christian. In verses three through five, we just saw that God the great and mighty and terrible and awesome and powerful God of the universe is the one who makes the earth shake. And in his kindness, he not only allows, but pursues people to be in relationship with him through the person of his son, Jesus Christ. This God is bigger than you. And by extension, his plans are bigger than yours. And part of being in an ongoing relationship with this God is coming to the realization that you are no longer your own. That you are part of something that is bigger than you and someone who is bigger than you. That you were bought with a price and as such your agenda is no longer your own. And this is why Jesus says in Luke chapter 9, these words that some of us find confusing and others of us find daunting. He says, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world? What does it mean to gain the whole world? Let's read into that. What would it profit a man if he, if he pursues and gains all of his personal happiness, but at the same time he loses himself or his soul? This is why Paul says in Philippians chapter one, for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain because I get to be with Christ. <laughs> you are part of something that is bigger than yourself. And if you devote yourself to the thing that is bigger, God himself and the purposes of this God, then you will not be worse off. You will not reach the end of your days and say, I failed to achieve happiness. Quite the contrary is true. You will have more than you could have ever gained of your own volition. And that is what we see here. 
we see for their participation in the battle, these tribes are highlighted as those who honor God and who gain esteem among men. Esteem they could have never gained on their own. They go down in the songs of the annals of history as victorious ones in that season of their life. And they receive the prize. And the prize in this instance is, of course, freedom from their oppressors. They're highlighted in the song to communicate one of the main themes. And that is this. When the glory of God is on the line, the people of God should get to work. When the glory of God is on the line, the people of God should get to work. We see another group of people in this song that sadly take the opposite posture. Verses 15 through 17 show us the group of people who did not respond to the call of God. Look at it with me. We see in verse 15 and on that Reuben, the tribe of Reuben, of Gilead, of Dan, and of Asher all heard the call of God, but they chose not to respond. Why? Well, there are a lot of different reasons why people don't participate in God's work, and, and maybe you can point to some of those own, those reasons for yourself at different seasons of your life. We see a couple reasons here. Verse 17 highlights the fact that Dan and Asher, as tribes, were unwilling to participate because they stayed near the coast by their ships. It says, Dan, why did he stay with his ships? Asher sat still at the seacoast. They didn't participate in the work of God here because they were afraid that if they did, it would cost them their economic gain. You see, their trade was on the seacoast. They did trade routes with the Phoenicians, and if they left or if they got involved in battle, it would cost them something. There was a risk for them to participate in God's work. And because of the cost, or potential cost, they stayed home. Reuben, the tribe of Reuben, is taunted in the song for their lack of participation. And the text repeats this phrase. Look at it with me. If you don't think the Bible is sarcastic or funny, think again. We see this a number of times throughout the Bible. It says, verse 15b, among the clans of Reuben, there were great searchings of heart. Why did you sit still among the sheepfolds to hear the whistling of the flocks? Among the clans of Reuben, there were great searchings of heart. That is a way of saying that these people were doing nothing of significance, but they postured themselves as, well, there's a battle this week. Do you think we should go? I don't know. Let's think about it for a while. Hmm. Do you think we should go? It's kind of hot. I don't know. The sheep might need something. Maybe we should stay home. But maybe we should go. Let's pray about it and see what God says. I didn't hear anything, did you? No, we might as well stay home. And so, among these clans, there was great searchings of heart. Despite the fact that God had clearly called, they didn't have anything else pressing against them, but they simply didn't care enough 
about God's work or about their fellow tribes to engage. So the tribes of Israel are united together. They're in the promised land together. They worship one God together. But despite their unity, they lack solidarity. Some are sacrificing for the sake of the nation and for the Lord, and others refuse to sacrifice for two reasons. One, because it cost them something and they didn't want to weigh the risk. And number two, because they were apathetic or indifferent toward the others and toward God himself. Another way to explain the second reality is in that they didn't really fully grasp how their actions in the moment would play into the big picture of the reality of God. And that leads us to a pretty important spiritual truth that we all need to be reminded of from from time to time, don't we? And that is this. A short-sighted life often misses out on participating in something much greater than oneself. A short-sighted life misses out on participating in something much greater than oneself. It's like the high school kid who doesn't study because they can't see how their education will help them down the future. It's like the person who has the ability to save for retirement. They have enough resources to do so, but they don't because they want to live in the now. And as a result, the consequences or the regret come for them much later. Now, as you think about your own life, perhaps some of these things would describe us. When God asks us to participate in his work, he asks us to engage in something ongoing in nature, something mystical very often, something that we cannot see immediate results for, and sometimes the results will not happen until long after we are dead. And yet a short-sighted life one that only says, I'm willing to do something with immediate results now, will not only not be obedient to God, but it will miss out on the celebration of what God is doing. I mean, it can be so easy to fall into these traps, right? To say, God, it costs too much. The risk is too great for me personally. It can be so easy to fall into the trap of saying, or just even being apathetic or indifferent toward those around us. Here's the thing. God is not indifferent. And there's a sense in the song that those who engage in a lack of participation in his work, these tribes, are actually engaging in a mild form of support for the enemy. There are areas of this life where non-engagement in something actually says something we don't really want to say, right? I mean, I think of a time when I was in high school, my brother brought home a friend that my mom didn't particularly care for. And there's good reasons for that. And, and while he was over at our house for the short time, he said some very rude things about my mother while she was standing right there. Yeah, them fighting words. Now, my brother was at the crossroads, and he's caught in the middle. What he should have done is rebuke his friend, stand up for his mother, and end it right there. Or what he could have done is to say, I don't really want to get involved in this conflict, and just let that rest and sit and see what happens between the two of them as time goes on. But what does that say? 
his lack of willingness to be involved in the conflict, his lack of participation here, actually comes as a form of support for his friend against his own mother. Sometimes inaction is actually communicating some kind of allegiance, isn't it? I wonder what your action or what your inaction says about you. I wonder what that says about your allegiance. Because choosing to ignore God's call to engage is actually a mild form of support, isn't it, for something you might not support or for someone you might not support. The sovereign God of the universe is going to accomplish his purposes with or without you. But when the glory of God is on the line, friends, the people of God should go to work. (laughs) And that leads to the third type of person in this story. That's the people who distinguished themselves above everyone else in the battle. Look at it with me. We have these two tribes, verse 18, Zebulun and Naphtali. These are the ones among all the tribes that are lauded the most. People who risked their lives to the death. Naphtali fought on the heights of the field. We see these two ladies, Deborah and Yael. Deborah stands in contrast to Barak, who is weak and doubting. His lack of faith and courage is sorrowful compared to the godly prophetic voice of this woman. She also stands in contrast to the mother of Sisera. Verse 7, Deborah is referred to as the mother in Israel. And at the end of the song in verse 28, we see Out of the window peers Sisera's mother, and in a mocking sort of way, they sing about her wondering when her little boy will come home. But he had been killed. Yael is even more interesting, isn't she? She had nothing to do with the conflict. She wasn't even an Israelite. She had no training. She was called a tent-dwelling woman, a woman that lived outside of the cities, that lived in between kingdoms, And as such, she was a nobody. And yet, unlike the people who were displayed by their indifference and self-centered focus, she becomes the hero of the story simply because she's willing to be used by God to eliminate the enemy. And we don't seek to emulate her actions quite obviously, but what comes through is that she is a willing vessel, that there was opportunity to serve God And so she stepped into it. Are you a willing vessel? Do you want to be? I don't want to get to the end of my days when I look back and I realized that I missed out. I mean, friends, we can spend our whole lives on the most meaningful things in history right now if we're only willing to be used by God consistently and regularly, when we step out in faith and courage, he gives us opportunity. The gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ that we see in this passage is that we are no longer enemies of God. We see at the very end that the enemies of God perish, but that we can be friends of God through the forgiveness of sins that he offers. And as friends, we become part of his family. And as part of his family, we become tools of God 
And as tools of God, we have access to the most meaningful things of God. And the New Testament is replete with all of these examples of what it means to be in the family of God and to be used by him. It means that the kingdom of God is ever expanding, that God's agenda of transferring people from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son and transforming them, and we get to participate in that, means that this kingdom of God is made up of a community of people They're called local churches who love each other, who build each other up, who actively use their gifts for the sake of God's glory and for the benefit of those around them. It means that part of this mission of these people of God is to share the good news of the gospel with those around us. Jesus says that the harvest is ripe, but the laborers are few. The apostle Paul says that these people are the ones who are ambassadors for God in a ministry of reconciliation, as if they are the very mouthpiece of God himself to a world that so desperately needs him. Are you a willing vessel? Are you willing to participate? Because when the glory of God is on the line, the people of God should get to work. And if you choose not to participate then I fear that you will get to the end of your days and you will look back and you will say, wow, there was opportunity there, but I was seeking my personal happiness. And there was opportunity there, but I thought that the cost was too high. And there was opportunity there, but I was indifferent or apathetic And God continued to present opportunities to participate in the great and wonderful and world-changing works of him. But I missed out. You know, there are, are many great stories of life that become the most meaningful when they're at the crossroads, right? When people have to choose to participate or not to participate. Think about it. I mean, the great calls of society, the calls to battle, History, literature, film, they all point to these things again and again and again because they are the most compelling things to us. The great speech by Martin Luther King Jr. John F. Kennedy's asked not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. William Wallace's great speeches to the Scotsmen in the battles against the English. And William Shakespeare's Henry V. Where in Henry V we see a St. Crispin's Day speech reminding men of the great glory that awaits if they participate and the great regret attached to missing out. And the closing stanza says this as I close this morning of the Crispin Day speech. From this day to the ending of the world, but we in it shall be remembered. We few, we happy few, we band of brothers. For he today that sheds blood with me shall be my brother, be he ne'er so vile. This day shall gentle his condition. And gentlemen in England, now abed, shall think themselves accursed that they were not here. And hold their manhoods cheap while any speaks that fought with us upon St. Crispin's Day. 
Don't miss out. Don't miss out. The glory of God, when it's on the line, then the people of God should get to work. I hope you don't miss it. Let's pray and ask for God's help, shall we? Father, we know that you will glorify yourself among all else because you are the most valuable, you are the most worthy, you are the almighty God. And I pray that we as your people will faithfully follow in your work, that your call upon our lives would be ever more compelling, that the distractions around us for personal comfort or happiness or pursuits or the concerns of apathy or indifference or risk or cost would all fall dim in comparison to the brightness of your glory. Help us in this, we pray. Amen.